Good morning. Today's scripture is found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. I'll be reading from the NIV. Hear the word of the Lord. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's words, God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Fritz. Thank you, Allison and team, for leading us in worship. What beautiful songs and expressions of our praise to the Lord this morning. Good morning, Trinity. It's kind of scattered out there. Just exhausted from all that praise worship music, right? So good to be back with you. Beth and I were gone last weekend, missed you. We were visiting our son and daughter-in-law and their kids up north of Milwaukee and uh, just had a great visit with them. And, uh, but we're glad to be home, glad to be with you. And uh, just let me add my encouragement to you for tonight, the SING conference. Um, Beth and I are going to be coming back from home to here at 6 o'clock tonight to be a part of this. We've got a couple of our youth that are participating as well, at special music and a testimony. So um, just making this evening extra special to get to hear from our next generation um, coming up here behind us. So uh, if you can make it tonight, let me encourage you to be here for our SING conference evening at 6 o'clock. And uh, Operation Christmas Child, we finally got to our build our boxes this past week. We did it online, first time we've ever done that. It's actually amazingly easy. So if, you, if you've if you been afraid to try it, just go to the link. Use the link from our church. That'll put you right on our church portion of, this good, of the Samaritan's Purse website for Operation Christmas Child. And you get to choose what goes in the box. You get to write a special message, your own message to go in the box. And uh, so it really is personalized that way. But it's very easy. So I encourage you to do it and completely touch-free. Just do it at home. So I told the first service, I remember those days dragging our kids around Target trying to find all the little toys to go in the box and then get home and try to make it fit on the box and, and all that. So it's, it's very much simplified this year.
year especially. So uh, if, and the missions committee has graciously offered to do even that part for you if you want and just to make the donation. So we've got one week left, so please jump in on that. And um, also just to say thank you to our deacons, this was just kind of came together this past week, the recognition of this need through CARES to help these 250 families with Thanksgiving dinner. What an opportunity for us as a church to bless our community. And our deacons have said, hey, we haven't been doing the Wednesday night dinners. We've got this whole crew of people and volunteers that usually help every Wednesday night with the food, and we have been waiting for an opportunity, so we want to do this. So they're going to get together, and as many of you are part of those teams, to put those meals together over this next week, and then to be delivered to those families in those three days before Thanksgiving. So um, this is awesome. So thank you for that. And as Jason said, if you want to give a gift specifically to that, it's going through our benevolence. Just make a designated gift to benevolence, and it will go to those Thanksgiving dinners um, coming up over this next week. So uh, that's, that's one of the things I love about Trinity. I just love our, our response when we, there's a need that arises, whether it's at one of our former one of our missionaries across the world, or it's a need right here in our community. You all are so gracious to just step right into the, those needs and help. So thank you for that. Um, and God's Word is before us for this morning, and I'm excited about what God has to say to us in this third chapter of Second Peter. So would you pray with me as we prepare for His Word? Lord God, we thank you for this time together. Thank you for these songs that have so beautifully expressed your greatness and your goodness and your mercy, expressed that our souls are safe and well only in you because they are in your hands. So it doesn't matter what happens around us. It doesn't matter the chaos or the confusion or, or the, the difficulties that come into our lives, into our world we can still say, as we've sung this morning, with such confidence, it is well with my soul. And Lord Jesus, that's only because of you, because you came and out of love went to the cross and died for our sin and came back to life and are living and speaking for us at the throne of the Father. And that gives us the confidence to sing that. And so this morning as we come to your precious word that's been kept for us and given to us, Lord, we want to learn from you. And I ask, Lord, that you would guard my words, help me to rightly, accurately communicate what you want said this morning. And we ask that it would be your living word and your living spirit at work in us to help us understand, to help us grasp and respond to your truth this morning as you would have us respond. And we commit ourselves to you as an act of worship to respond to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So it was not my wedding, but I was the pastor officiating at this particular wedding. This goes back a couple of years when Beth and I were living in Tacoa, Georgia, and the wedding was in Hartwell, Georgia, about an hour away. So we left home, got to the wedding site there, and... We were about an hour before the wedding, and I went in, saw all the stuff going on, everybody getting ready, and the wedding planner came over to me, and she was said, he said, here's your boutonniere, let me, I need to put this on your lapel. And it was then that I realized I had no lapel, because I had forgotten my jacket at home. <laughs> okay, this maybe happened, something like this happened to you before, but I... I, I I needed that jacket. This was a fairly formal wedding, so it was, I had the rest of the suit. I mean, I had my pants and shirt and tie. I remembered all that, but I forgot the jacket at home. Well, 
and there was nobody there that had an extra jacket, and this was not, there wasn't time to go home and get a jacket and come back, and nobody lived right close by to go borrow one from. So Beth did the only thing we had left. She went into this little town of Hartwell, Georgia, and if you've ever been there, there's not much in Hartwell, but she found a store, a little mom and pop store that sold men's suits, and amazingly, really miraculously, she found a black suit with a jacket my size. And amazingly, the storekeeper, after hearing the sob story of my forgetfulness, said, oh, just take it. He, just, he cut the tags off. No, well, not take it to keep it, but go ahead and take it and use it for the wedding and then just bring it back. No deposit, didn't have to buy it, didn't even have to rent it. We used the jacket. I wore it for the wedding, and I think before the reception was even done, Beth was hurrying it back to the little shop and with many thank yous to the shopkeeper. Now, I'm not the only one who forgets things. I realize that. We all face that, right? Maybe even this morning there was something you said, I forgot. And this is just part of our human experience. We forget things. We wish we could remember, although sometimes we wish we could forget. Sometimes we intentionally forget things or ignore things that we don't want to be reminded of. That's part of what goes on in our lives. But God has given us his word and said over and over in his word, I want you to remember. Don't forget. And Peter does that in our passage today. There are certain things he brings us to, and he says, these are things you must remember. Do not forget these things, my friends. You need to know this. And that's the focus on our passage today. In fact, our series here in 2 Peter, we've called All You Need. And we've been reminded from Peter about what God has given us, all that we need to live for him. But we'll only know that if we remember what he said to us in his word. And so that's where Peter comes to as we come to the third chapter. So if you have your Bible, I hope you do, please turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, the last chapter of 2 Peter. Look it up in your phone or electronic device, follow along. We're going to read those, we're going to study those first 10 verses that Fritz read for us a moment ago. And if you were here last week, you heard Jason tackle a difficult passage at the end of chapter 2. Uh, I so appreciate Jason's partnership in ministry, always faithful to bring God's Word, study it, prepare it, and present it, and uh, he handled that so well last week. And a, a difficult passage where Peter is talking about these false teachers and, and what they were like and, and how they were headed for destruction, and, and following them would lead one to dis destruction. And I I just pulled up chapter 2, verse 17. This is kind of maybe representative of what that passage was about in case you missed it last week. And Peter says, these people, speaking of the false teachers, said they're springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. Now, that's pretty dramatic. What were they teaching? What was wrong with what they were saying that Peter would say that about them? And that's what we get in chapter 3. Peter goes on to explain, to give us a glimpse of their error. And, and part of it was connected to the fact that they didn't believe that there would be a day of reckoning. And so they lived recklessly. They didn't believe that they would be held accountable for their actions and so they didn't count on God's justice and God's judgment coming to bear on their lives. And they didn't believe in God's truth, and so they made up their own 
stories, their own messages. And Peter says, as we come to this passage today, and I've chosen this for the title, he says, don't forget. He's begging his readers, don't listen to the false teachers. Instead, remember God's truth. Remember what God has said. You've got to come back to this. And so he makes these three pleas in these first 10 verses of chapter 3, and that'll be our focus this morning. And the first is this one, based right off our title for this morning, Don't Forget God's Word. Don't forget God's Word. Look at verses 1 and 2. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So Peter had written to this group of believers before. We talked about that in introducing the book. And in both of the, his letters, he was coming back to this theme of remembrance. He wanted them and wants us, as we read this passage today, to think clearly about these important issues. And he hasn't said what they are yet, but he says, you got to remember these things. What was it? What were they to go back and remember? Well, he gives us the source. So he says, the Old Testament prophets talked about these things. So you got to go back to the Old Testament. You find it there. And he says, and the words of our Lord and Savior. So he's looking at the Gospels and what Jesus taught, what came out of his mouth. And he says, those words that were passed on by your apostles. So Paul and John and James and Peter himself, all of those who wrote our New Testament, who were taking the words of Jesus and the prophecies of the Old Testament and bringing them to bear on life in Christ for the church. So both the Old and New Testament, everything that God has preserved for us are written for our remembrance. But what specifically is Peter thinking of here? What's the truth that was under attack? What is it that he wants us specifically to remember? Here it is in the next, next couple of verses. He says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So the scoffers that he's talking about here is probably a reference back to the false teachers. They were some of them, but Peter knew they were still going to be coming. There would be more of them. And so he kind of lumps them into this category. They're critics. They're scoffers. They're challenging what God says about the coming of his son. And the Old Testament prophets foretold this as well. They foretold this day of the Lord that would come, a day of judgment when God would deal with sin. And, of course, God did that in, at the beginning with, by sending his son Jesus. So his first advent was God's first addressing of the sin problem. Jesus came, but judgment didn't come on the world. The judgment instead came on God's own son, Jesus. On the cross, he bore the weight, the judgment, the deadly judgment for our sin. And so, because of that, anyone who puts their faith in Jesus as their Savior from sin is released from that judgment. That's the first part of God's plan. But there will be another day of judgment. The Old Testament talked about it. Jesus talked about it. The New Testament writers talked about it. 
a day of judgment for those who reject then that offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. So judgment is released from those who receive that gift of salvation, but judgment will still come, a day that is future that would come for those who reject him. And so Peter uses this phrase, last days, which is used often in the Bible, and it refers to that time period between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, his first advent and his second advent. That's the last days. So it was the last days when Peter wrote this book, and we still live in the last days because we are still awaiting Christ's return. We are in the last days. And Peter says these first century skeptics were revealing their own kind of philosophy about life, their worldview, if you will, which was naturalistic. So their phrase was, everything goes on as it has from the beginning. So they're looking at their world and they're seeing it through these eyes of saying, God's not in the picture. God hasn't intervened in the past. He's not going to intervene in the future. The world is just going to go on as it is, as it will. And that's a philosophy that is still rampant in our day. That philosophy of naturalism probably is most clearly displayed in, in the theory of evolution. And so, like the skeptics, proponents of evolution say, everything goes on as it has from the beginning. There's this flow of history and nature does its thing. But that theory defies even scientific logic. I found this two-minute video. I want you to watch it. You got to listen carefully and hang with it because this moves fast. But it exposes what the issues are, the basic problems are, with this theory of evolution. So watch this. You hear this one a lot. Science has proven evolution, therefore evolution is true. Since evolution is true and Christians don't believe it, then Christians don't believe science and they aren't rational people. Really, let's put that claim to the test. First off, evolution in the sense that things change is evident. No rational person disputes that. Therefore, rational Christians believe it. We can observe change, but evolution in the sense that life came from non-life and then that life began to randomly generate new genetic information and over time it eventually produced humans is something entirely different and something that quite honestly doesn't hold up against science. In other words, evolution in the sense of molecules to man is not scientifically plausible and therefore should not be viewed as scientific fact. Quite honestly, it is in great opposition to science, that is, observational science, the kind of science we can test and repeat and use our five senses to understand. Science demonstrates that over time, Living organisms lose genetic information. They don't gain it. That same science demonstrates that life doesn't arise from non-life. Hey, Follow along if you would. Fact one, there is no known observable process by which new genetic information can be added to an organism's genetic code. None. That pretty much refutes evolution right away because there's no way to go from a fish to an amphibian without adding new information, right? If living organisms cannot produce new genetic information, how can anything gradually change into something of higher intelligence or form or complexity? That is, how can anything evolve from an amoeba to a man without adding new genetic information? The answer, of course, is that it can't, plain and simple. Now, some have speculated and they have imagined all kinds of things, and they brought in artists to produce creative renderings based on guesses, and they have been successful in telling a very convincing story that humans evolved from ape-like creatures. But those are just drawings, people. They're just stories. But what we really observe is humans are humans and apes are apes. Now, if fact one buried evolutionary thinking deep into the Precambrian soil, this next fact, fact Two tosses so much sediment on it that not even the greatest team of paleontologists with the latest subterranean gizmo could dig up the remains. Check this out. Never, again, never has it been observed that life can come from non-life. So here are two 
major scientific evidences against evolution. I reiterate for clarity, life has never been observed to come from non-life, and there is no known observable process by which new genetic information can be added to the genetic code of an organism. So, molecules the man evolution doesn't really make scientific sense. Yet we are all here, and life is all around us in various forms. Although evolution cannot account for this, the Bible can. The Bible reveals that the all-powerful, all-knowing, supernatural God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, and all life according to its kinds, that is, each with its own set of genetic information. So, again, what the Bible reveals makes sense of what we see and understand. Evolution does not. Enough said. All right, there you go. <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> You'll be tested on that at the end of the service, too. <laughs> so, if that's the case, why would people believe it? Why would people cling to this? Why did the skeptics that Peter talks about cling to this idea that of naturalism? That oh, it's just what we see and observe. God's not in the picture. Well, it's because if you allow for God's existence and you allow for his involvement in our existence, then what comes with that is a moral accountability to the one who created us. And if you don't want that moral accountability, then you must find a way to, to try to disprove or disbelieve who God is and what he's done. If you don't want that accountability, then you won't believe God as creator, as savior, or as coming judge. You just have to rule that out. And that's what the skeptics were doing. And so the same reason false teachers denied Christ's coming is the same reason people deny it today, and that is that they want to follow their own evil desires. People, Peter makes that very clear. It's because they want to follow their own way, their own agenda. They want to do life on their terms, and so therefore they write God out of the story. And that happens in our day too. Because if you want to do what's wrong, then you have to ignore, you will try to deny any consequences for that wrongdoing. So you don't want to know about a judgment to come. Pastor Warren Wiersbe puts it this way, if your lifestyle contradicts the Word of God, you must either change your lifestyle or change the Word of God. And the Word of God cannot be changed. So, Peter first says, do not forget God's word or God's warnings. But there's something else. There's more forgetfulness that Peter wants to address. And so, secondly, he says, don't forget God's power. Don't forget God's power. So, why do these false teachers scoff at this idea of the second coming? The, the, the explanation continues in verse 5. Peter says, but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So, he's saying here, now this is, they're deliberately forgetting. So, these skeptics were people that knew the word, that knew what the Bible said, but they were rejecting it. They were deliberately forgetting it. And so, Peter is saying, you need to remember what they are intentionally forgetting. And he names two things here. The first is that the heavens and earth were created at God's Word, that He spoke and our universe came into being all at His hand, all by His power. 
And so the second day of creation, let me go to that reading in Genesis chapter 1 because it describes this whole creation and separation of the water as Peter describes in his passage. So Genesis 1, we'll put on the screen here, verse 6, starting there. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. And God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the vault sky. Don't you love that? God not only created it, water in the heavens, water on the earth, and this, this vault, as the NIV calls it, in between, and God says, that's sky. So whenever you talk about the sky, you're using the word God gave it. He named it. He created it. He named it. And Peter is saying, this is the awesome creative power of God's word that could bring everything into existence. All out of nothing. And so what's Peter's point here? He's saying that the God who started it all by the power of his word is the very same one who can end it all by the power of his word when he so chooses. That's the power of God's word. So Peter is pointing us back to say, if God created it all, God can end it all. And that leads to his second example in verse 6. He says, by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. So I've mentioned this before. This is now Peter's third reference to the flood. Obviously, his favorite Bible story growing up as he went was, was Noah and the ark and the flood. And so he goes back to it again here and he says, that's an illustration of God's power, God's word to destroy what even what he has created because of sin. So he talks about the world of that time destroyed by this flood. So everything that was in existence destroyed except Noah and his family and the animals who were on the ark. They were the only ones saved. And so what we have here, and to make sure you don't miss this, Peter clearly believed in a divine creation and in a universal flood. And he uses both of those as examples here of God's powerful word. The skeptics of his day did not believe that. They denied these supernatural acts of God, and it's the same is true in our day. So, unfortunately, even some who claim to be Christians will look at the Bible and they'll say, you know, that creation account, that's a nice story, but couldn't have happened that way. Don't believe it. That's supernatural. Or look at the flood and say, that could not have happened. There could not have been a worldwide flood. That's just a story. And so it's not surprising that those who look at the Bible that way also look at the, the prophetic promises of what is yet to come and say, I don't believe it. It's not actually going to happen. Where is this coming that he promised? Just like the skeptics of Peter's day. And so Peter brings all this together and he, he makes his argument then. He says, if God created it all, by his word, and if he's already shown his ability to judge the earth by his word, then he's powerful enough to bring final judgment as well. Verse 7, by the same word, the word that created, the word that brought the flood, by that same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So it won't be a flood because God promised Noah that he would never destroy the earth again by a flood, right? Right? But it will be fire. 
And so Peter says, this day is coming when God will judge sin on the earth with this destructive fire. And it's fascinating the wording that he uses. So he says, the earth is being reserved for fire. He says, by God's word, it's being kept. And the word actually means guarded. So God is kind of standing around the earth, and he is protecting it, guarding it, keeping it for the time when he decides it's time for judgment. It's time for that destruction to come. Which means, essentially, this is, this is good news for us because it means that our world will not end because of global warming or because of a nuclear holocaust or because of some random asteroid that hits the earth. Our world will end when God determines it will end. And it will come the way and the time, he says, and the final judgment will come on sin and Satan when God decides. And, you know, there's this, this sense in our world of, of that. Even the secular world, this, this almost this fear that one day the earth will end. That's why you see a lot of disaster movies and end-of-the-world movies and stuff like that. And, and I, I wonder if maybe that sense is not even put in us for a reason, because God wants us to understand, yes, there is an end coming. But for us as Christians, the, the comforting word here is that it's only going to happen when God says. It will not happen randomly. It will not happen accidentally. It will not even happen at man's own hand. It will only happen at God's hand and in God's time. God has the power to continue to hold this world together until he says it's time to burn up the old in order to recreate the new. And we're going to come to that next week. The new heavens, the new earth, what's next? Peter's going to tell us that as well. But all this begs this obvious question, why is God waiting? Why does he, why does he let sin and evil and pain and suffering continue to run rampant in our world? Why not just end it all now? Have you ever asked that question? God, why don't you just come and end this? And Peter gives us the answer. It's our third key point here that he says, don't forget, and it's this, don't forget God's patience. Don't forget his patience. So Peter quotes from the psalm, Psalm 90, verse 4. He writes these words in verse 8. He says, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Have you ever tried to ponder that, just wrap your mind around that? I look at that and I think, okay, which is it? Is, is, is our day like a thousand years in God's time, or is God's day like a thousand years in our time? And the answer is, it's both. And the answer is, it's neither. Because Peter's point is not that there's this metric that you can use and that you just, you know, his years equal our days or a thousand years equal. That's not his point. It's not what he's saying. It's not what the psalmist was saying. The point is that God lives outside of time. God is eternal. He is not bound by time. We are finite. We live in time. We are bound by time. And so here's what this means. Now catch this. When we think of eternity, we think of it according to time. So eternity is just this really long, long, long time, and it gets longer and longer, and it never really ends. And so it's even longer than longer is, and we can't ever get there because we're bound by time. We cannot really fully understand eternity. 
So God's perspective here is what Peter's trying to tell us. His perspective is completely different from ours in a way that we cannot understand until we are glorified and given our eternal bodies. Only then will we understand this. So God's delay, Peter is saying, what we think is delay is not delay at all in God's world and his eternal time frame. We look at 2,000 years. Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago. Jesus was here 2,000 years ago. Why hasn't he come back yet? But there is no short time or long time with God. He is never late, and he's never in a hurry because he is not bound by time. Have you ever, uh, this may be the best way I can describe it, have you ever tried to talk about something coming up in the future to a toddler? Right? So you try to explain something that's a month away or some weeks away. It's just hard for them to grasp. So as I said, we were visiting our kids, and we were there because our grandson Trey was celebrating his third birthday. That's why we planned to be there for his third birthday. So here's him enjoying his fancy pastry. This was what he, got. This is what he wanted for his birthday, his mom to make him a fancy pastry. And so he is all into it, as you can tell. Now, this, we, I know this was promised long before maybe a month before, weeks before, whatever it was. But imagine Trey's little two-year-old, almost three-year-old mind trying to get his mind around a month away before I can have my fancy pastry? A week, seven days, that makes no sense to him. You can try to say, well, it's seven sleeps or show it on a calendar or something like that. It doesn't matter. It's, he wants his fancy pastry now. The, the, the future doesn't make sense to him. When the Bible talks about eternity... When Peter talks about eternity, he's saying God sees this in a whole different way that you cannot fully grasp. Don't see this as God's delay because in his eternal span, this is nothing for him. Don't forget that God has an eternal perspective on your life, on my life, on our world. But Peter takes it even deeper. I love this next verse because he's revealing the very heart of God. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So ask the questions again. Why hasn't God judged the evil in our world? Why hasn't he put an end to suffering and death? Why is he so slow in keeping his promise to return and set everything right? Because he's patient. Peter says, because he's patient. Because his heart is that more will come to him and believe in him, repent of their sin and be saved. That's God's desire. Because he doesn't want to send people to an eternal death. That's God's heart. And Peter, of course, is not saying that everybody will be saved. He's saying that God's desire is that everybody would be saved, even though he knows not everybody will be saved because some will refuse to repent. And so Peter is reminding us, don't forget about God's heart, God's love, God's patience. His point is the seeming delay, what we see as a delay in Christ's return, is not due to God's inability to judge. It's not that he's trying to figure all this out. What do I do? It's not in, it's some indifference to sin, that God doesn't care about the evil that surrounds us and the suffering that surrounds us. That's not it either. He's saying it's only because of his great mercy. That's why he hasn't returned yet. 
You know, I, I used to teach at Tacoa Falls College and would occasionally teach a class and uh, invariably one or two students after assignment was due would come to me, oh, Professor Gango, we, I, I just didn't get to it or I forgot something, there's the that's excuse again, I forgot and you know, something, can I please have a, an extra day, can you give me an extension to get my assignment in or come to the end of the semester and if the work wasn't done, don't, don't fail me, please just give me an incomplete, I'll get the work done. And being the soft-hearted guy that I am, I usually would say, all right, if, if they were genuine in their request, I would say, okay, I'll give you an extension, give you a little more time. Because honestly, I wanted them to succeed. I wanted them to finish the class, finish the work. I didn't want to have to fail them. Now, how much more is God's heart for us? He wants us to come to him. He wants us to get right with him. And he gives extensions. He gives second chances. But eventually, time will run out. One day, time will run out. The day of reckoning will arrive, and that's what Peter talks about in verse 10. He says, but the day of the Lord will come. It will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So even the wording that Peter uses, again, remember, he followed Jesus. He heard Jesus, and Jesus said this. He was the first to use this phrase, a thief in the night. Matthew 24 describes that. And so Peter's remembering what he heard from Jesus, and he's repeating it here. And he's saying, when these events come, when the end comes, it will come without warning. It will come like in a, as a surprise. And then these events will begin to unfold, and the end of this, it will culminate in this total destruction of everything that we see and all that we know in our universe. I had a friend a few years back whose favorite saying was about the stuff of this earth. He would say, it's all going to burn. <laughs> if, if you want to cling to something or have something or build something, he said, well, it's okay. It, it's all going to burn anyhow. Then he's right. In a sense, then that's, that's a good reminder because we have to be careful. We're not clinging too tight to the things that are not eternal. The things that are temporary, the things that are just here, the things that will be destroyed when this day comes. Don't stake your life on those things because they will burn. So what do we do with all this? I think... I know, in the, in the next passage, next week, when we get to the last part of chapter 3, Peter's going to tell us, now here's how you should live in light of this truth of Christ's return and judgment to come. But until then, for today, what I think we should focus on is this reality of why God is being patient. Paul says it another way in Romans 2, verse 4. I'm going to put this verse on the screen for you. Paul says, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? And this is exactly what Peter is saying. He said God is being patient because he wants more people to repent, to come to him, to confess their sin. This is the purpose of God's patience. And he shows that kindness and patience to us every day by not condemning us for our sin. And so the question Paul is asking, and Peter is intimating as well, is are we exploiting his patience by continuing to sin? Or are we remembering that God's mercy is intended to lead us to repentance? 
that grace should cause us to grieve over our sin and that God is patiently waiting for us to repent. That's his goal for us. A few days ago, there was a pesky fly around in our house, and Beth always wants to make sure she doesn't like a fly around the house. It's got to be taken care of. It's got to be dealt with. And so what she'll do is she'll get out the fly swatter, and she just puts it on the counter close by where we are, so it's ready. So if that fly lands and either of us see it, that fly swatter is handy, ready to go, to go nail that fly. So we did that the other day. She put the fly swatter out, and guess where the fly landed? Right on the swatter. Landed right on the swatter. I mean, the brazenness of that fly. Because what are you going to do then? As soon as you pick up the swatter, he's gone. And I took a picture because as, as soon as I saw that, I thought, oh, there's an illustration there. <laughs> and, you know, we kind of operate that way. Sometimes God has given, he's put the fly swatter on the counter, if you will. He's given us, he's told us in his word. He's called us to repentance. He's given us a way to confess of our sin. And what do we do? Sometimes we just land on this water and just kind of put it back in his face and we keep sinning instead of repenting. And Peter is saying to us, he's being patient with you so that you will repent, so that you will come to him, so that you will be ready for his return. And I think that's where we need to land at the end of this passage today. Because there are great reminders here. Let me just review them for you again. Remember, don't forget the warnings and promises of God's Word. It's right here. And remember God's power. He's displayed it. He's shown His power in creation. He's shown His power and His ability to sustain this world until He determines it's time for judgment. And remember, don't forget God's patience that he functions outside of time and he is incredibly merciful and he invites us to come to him. So I'm going to ask the music team to go ahead and come. Our closing song really brings this to bear. It's a reminder of God's mercy. It's a call to repent of our sin. And I want this to be our response together today as we sing it, but maybe there's a personal response that needs to come to in your own life. If you've never repented of your sin in the first place and ask for that gift of salvation, then you're not ready for Christ's return. You're not ready for this day that Peter says is coming and the Bible says is coming. But you can be ready today if you respond and repent of your sin and receive that gift of eternal life. You will be ready. And if you already know him, maybe it's just a sin issue that you need to deal with today. Maybe it's something you just need to repent of, confess that sin, get it right with the Lord, and leave this building today clean and fresh and with a new start. That's what he offers you. That's his patience for us. Let me just read you the words to the second verse of this song that we're going to sing so that we're attentive to them. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you so much that your mercy is more. It is great. Thank you that your grace extends to us. And I thank you, Lord, that you give us your word to remind us and warn us and call us back to yourself. Lord, we want to be ready for Christ's return. We want to be diligent and at your work and serving you. And Lord, to do that, we, we need to be aware. We need to be clinging to the things that are eternal, living for the things that are eternal, and living in forgiveness and grace. So this morning, Lord, if there's anything in our lives that is blocking us from following you and walking with you, Lord, we confess those sins. We bring them to you. We call on your infinite mercy, and we ask you in your patience to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is our prayer as we close the service today, Lord Jesus. Thanking you in your name, we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.